to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, the news this week is all over the place, and there's a lot of it to cover. The U.S. withdrawal of our troops from the Syrian border, Turkey's assault across the Syrian border, and the sudden entrance of Russia and Syria into the equation that evened up the odds and changed everything, and the promise of a new trade deal with China. So there's a lot to talk about, and let's get started. Let's start with the president's announcement last week that he was going to be pulling back American troops that were fighting with the Kurds against ISIS and had waged a successful campaign to defeat ISIS in northern Syria. ISIS became a powerful force in northern Syria during the civil war that has been raging in Syria since 2011. Last week, I talked about how this so-called civil war began. As a result of that war in Syria, more than 3 million refugees, Syrians fleeing from the war, crossed over into Turkey, and Turkey established refugee camps for them, not far from the Turkish border. So these Syrian refugees were the result of the Syrian civil war. At some point, the Turks decided that it was time for them to go home, even though the war in Syria isn't over. Nevertheless, that was their decision, and they had a plan that would, in their eyes, kill two birds with one stone. Now, the Turks and the Kurds have been enemies for generations, and the Turks do not want the Kurds on their border. So this was their plan. They would use their military might to cross over into Syria, set up a 20-mile buffer zone, drive the Kurds out one way or another, and then resettle the Syrian refugees in this buffer zone in Syria. That was their plan, and they made it very clear that they would attack Syria, kill or drive out the Kurds, whom they consider terrorists, and then resettle the Syrian refugees there. There was only one problem. Well, actually, there were many problems, but the one big problem was that there were U.S. troops working with the Kurds in this area of Syria. And the United States and Turkey are both members of NATO. So fighting with each other was not something that would be looked on kindly by anyone in the free world. So what to do? They informed the United States that whether or not we removed our troops from the region, they would attack anyway. And President Trump decided that it was the better part of wisdom to pull back the U.S. troops, and the Kurds would be on their own. We'll get into the rationale for that later. But the situation in Syria was very difficult 
because not only were the Kurds living there, but ISIS terrorists who had been captured in the offensive against them were also imprisoned there. And the Kurds were guarding them and keeping them from escaping. One of the Kurdish leaders explained the situation this way. He said, look, if the U.S. withdraws and if Turkey attacks us, we can either guard the ISIS fighters, the terrorists, or we can fight the Turks. But we can't do both. Now, the European Union hasn't been happy either, and they've had a lot to say about it. Germany accused Turkey of willingly risking further destabilization of the region and a resurgence of ISIS. Syria also condemned Turkey's aggression and called it a flagrant violation of Syria's sovereignty. French President Emmanuel Macron urged Turkey to immediately end its military operation in northern Syria, saying it risks strengthening ISIS in Syria. And he said, I condemn vehemently the unilateral military offensive in Syria, and I urge Turkey to put an end to it as quickly as possible. Turkey is today forgetting that the priority of the international community in Syria is the fight against ISIS and terrorism. Turkey is creating a humanitarian risk for millions of people, unquote. But you know, talk is cheap, and the incursions continue. But this week, several things changed. And that's what I want to tell you about, because the playing field is different now than it was at the beginning of this week. And the changes are significant. Now, you probably heard, in fact, that just a few days ago, a civilian convoy carrying journalists and humanitarian aid workers was bombed by Turkish forces. One journalist was killed, as well as nine other civilians, and 23 civilians in that convoy were also wounded. Now, that attack by a military against a civilian target is absolutely against international law and against the Geneva Conventions. But Turkey does not seem to care. Turkey is applying its military might in brutal ways against civilians. But ironically, Erdogan has said that one of its goals is to form a safe zone to which at least one million Syrian refugees can go, he said. For those who want to return to their country but don't have a home left anymore, we plan to build settlements for one million people with international financing. Maybe he's counting on financing from the European Union. You know, in 2016, Turkey and the European Union made a deal that the European Union would give Turkey 6 billion euros if it would keep those three-plus million Syrian refugees in Turkey and not send them on to Europe and flood Europe with them. The EU also promised Turkey visa-free travel to Europe for Turkish citizens. But in the last three years, Turkey has been complaining that the European Union has been very slow in transferring the money and criticized the EU for not doing more 
to assist in the larger refugee problem. So now Turkey is playing its trump card and wants the money from the European Union to pay for the resettlement of these Syrian refugees. Or it will release the Syrian refugees, not back to Syria, but to Europe. The EU condemned the Turkish assault against the Kurds, and it called on Erdogan to immediately stop its operation in Syria. It also had a comment to make on this so-called safe zone. The European Commission president said, quote, If Turkey's plan is to create a so-called safe zone, don't expect the EU to pay for any of it, unquote. Now, Erdogan also talked about the international concerns over ISIS prisoners that had, before the invasion, been guarded by the Kurdish forces. Erdogan tried to assure the world that they were in control of things. Erdogan said, quote, those that need to be kept in jail, we will keep in jail. We'll return foreigners to their home countries if they accept them back, unquote. It sounds good. Sounds like he's in control, knows what he's doing. Only guess what? The latest reports have revealed that hundreds of ISIS fighters who were in jail have broken out and are now free to roam somewhere in northern Syria. The most recent reports indicate that Turkish forces have shelled these prisons, opening up walls and giving the prisoners an opportunity to escape. And hundreds of them have. So how did this happen? Well, we know that the Kurds are no longer guarding the prisons, but that's not necessarily enough to allow the prisoners to escape. But the news that the Turks have targeted the prisons reveals the answer. In other words, it is the Turkish forces themselves who have engineered the escape of the ISIS terrorists and created a new threat for the region. So, as I said before, and will probably say again, words are cheap. The very thing that we were afraid of with this move by President Trump, that very thing, the invasion of Turkey, the escape of ISIS prisoners, and the murder of our allies, the Kurds, is now happening. When the president decided to withdraw our troops from the area and leave the Kurds, we thought, to fight on their own, this raised an awful lot of objection for many people, including myself. And last week I told you why I thought it was such a bad idea. Two reasons. One is that it made us look weak in the eyes of other allies in the Middle East because we were retreating, in effect, in their eyes. And the other reason it was a bad idea was because we were abandoning our allies. Now, how does that make our other allies around the world feel if they think that America cannot keep its promises to its allies and defend them when they are under attack? So for those two reasons and some others, I felt that this was a bad move. I was very critical of the president. But in retrospect, I see that I failed to take into account one very important factor. The president, whom I greatly admire, as you know, plays the long game. And while most of the time the president is very transparent, 
He is a strategist and a negotiator, and he does not always reveal his hand when he's playing his cards. And in this case, I believe he was playing his cards very close to his chest. And that's where we get to the latest news. Because as of Tuesday morning, the Kurds had made a deal with Russia and Syria. And Russian troops had moved in to fill the gap between the Kurds and the Turks along the Syrian-Turkish border and create a buffer zone of their own to protect the Kurds from the Turkish assault. It's what I call the Trump sandwich. The Turks on one side, the Kurds on the other, and in the middle, the Russians are patrolling the border to keep the two sides separate. Now, this is not a civil war anymore. It's a cross-border war between some very powerful players. Syria and Russia and an army of Kurds who are themselves ferocious fighters. And so that is the news that we woke up to on Tuesday morning and that changes everything in that part of the world. But there is something else to keep in mind when you're looking at this situation. There are more players now, and the arena has expanded. The war has begun in earnest. Now, there was a report this morning that last night, Turkey's President Erdogan put in a call to President Donald Trump. We don't know what they talked about, of course, but it's probable that he was asking for some kind of assistance that could get him out of this mess. He's not going to get money from the European Union. He's not going to be able to march freely into Syria. And his plan for a buffer zone paid for by the European Union seems to be dead in the water as well. So he's in a tight spot, and it's not clear how he's going to get out of it. So that's the big story of what's happening in northeastern Syria this week. And it makes a world of difference. Because not only are the Kurds much better protected from the Turkish assault, but the international dynamics of the relationships between Syria, Russia, Turkey, and the Kurds has changed dramatically. And I think that this may have been part of Trump's plan from the beginning. One more thing about Turkey. Erdogan has been playing Russia against the United States for quite a while now, and it's about to backfire. You may remember that back in July, the Trump administration announced that Turkey would no longer be allowed to purchase F-35 fighter jets from the United States. Turkey had decided to buy a Russian air defense system, the S-400. The administration said that the Russian system could compromise the American fighter jet program. Now, the U.S. has a substantial military presence in Turkey, including 50 nuclear bombs, which a late report on Tuesday indicated might be being held hostage now by Turkey. Anyway, the U.S. was concerned back then that the Russian system would compromise the American fighter jet program. 
The purchase of the Russian S-400 air defense system by Turkey was in violation of American law and established protocols. Nevertheless, Turkey began taking delivery of components of the S-400 over the objections of its American partners, from whom it was also supposed to buy the F-35s. Now, last week I talked about how this so-called civil war in Syria began and how the three million Syrian refugees now in Turkey that Erdogan is using as an excuse to invade Syria are the result of that war. Erdogan is very conflicted, trying to play both sides, Russia against the United States, Syrian refugees against the Kurds. And it looks like this is going to backfire. The news that comes over the next week or so should be extremely interesting because Russia is now deeply involved in the conflict along the Syrian border, and we will have to see how this unfolds. Well, we're going to take a short break now, but I'll be right back with a story about a little worm that may help solve the differences in the trade talks between the United States and China. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Everybody's talking about the polls. There are presidential polls. There are job approval polls for president, for Congress. There are polls for the, each one of the Democrat presidential nominees. You know, I've been looking at these polls, the political polls, and I can't help but wonder what they actually mean and how accurate they are and whether we can trust them at all. Now, for example, there was a poll on Monday this week, the 14th of October. There was a poll about the 2020 Democrat presidential nomination. It was a Quinnipiac poll. And it showed that Biden had 27%, Warren had 30%, and Sanders had 11%, and everybody else came in under 10 and then there was the New Hampshire Democrat presidential primary. 
this one was done by the Boston Herald, and it had Warren 25, Biden 24, Sanders 22. Buttigieg was under nine, and so was everybody else. Then we had a presidential, this was all on Monday, the 14th of October, presidential Trump job approval, a Quinnipiac poll. Approval 41%, disapproval 54%. And then there was another one, a Rasmussen job approval poll. And Rasmussen report said approval 49%, disapprove only 50%, one point difference. And then congressional job approval, Quinnipiac poll. This one was painful. Approve. 28%, disapprove, 64%. Well, that's something I can relate to. They're talking about our Congress, which is a mess, which can't get anything done because they're so busy trying to impeach the president that they don't do the work that they were sent to Washington to do. But okay, that's another discussion. Finally, there was the direction of the country poll. The Rasmussen reports... And the right direction, 39%, wrong direction, 55%. 16% more said that we were going in the wrong direction. Now, here's the thing. When the polls vary so much, when in one poll Bernie Sanders gets 11% and in another poll he gets 22%, what does that tell us about the polls? When the results of polls give such divergent answers to the questions about which candidate is in front, which candidate is dropping, and so forth, how do you know what to believe? And why should you believe any of it? And why do candidates spend so much money paying for them? That's what I don't understand, because these polls are inconsistent They're inaccurate, and they don't mean anything. So this is is just for one day. And if you listen to the news, you read the papers, or you follow the news online, you hear about these polls over and over and over again. And I keep wondering, why are these polls so important? And why are so many people putting so much stock in them? In 2016, Hillary Clinton depended upon the polls to assure her that she was way in the league and she'd win by a landslide. Well, I figured that we might want to talk about this because the question of polls is so deeply embedded in the electoral process, this becomes a really important question. When we're trying to figure out what actually is going on and what can we expect from the upcoming elections? These are real questions. It's not going to influence my vote. It probably won't influence yours, these polls. But there are people who will be influenced by what other people think. And if they think, well, the polls say that candidate A is way ahead of candidate B, I'm going to vote for candidate A. It's what we used to call the bandwagon effect. You want to be doing what everybody else is doing. And I suppose there's some validity to that. But nevertheless, what the polls really mean is a serious question. Between you and me, I don't pay much attention to the polls. 
I've actually been on the receiving end with the polls where the questions were so skewed that it was very obvious whom the poll was being taken for. So the questions were skewed. And I remember one question on a poll that was otherwise very innocuous, but the final question was, don't you think that Donald Trump's really bad behavior is going to influence the voters to vote for the Democrats? Really? That wasn't biased question. It didn't show whom that poll was for. Anyway, that was when I hung up the phone. So here are the polls that I watch. How about the 100,000 people who requested tickets to attend the president's rally in Minneapolis and the 40,000 who showed up? Only half that number got into the Target Arena in Minneapolis while the rest stood outside in the cold rain. Now that's a poll. Minneapolis is a city so blue that Mayor Jacob Frey wanted to charge the Trump campaign half a million dollars for security. And he had the porta potties removed so that even though thousands of people waited all day outside the arena in order to get in, these Republicans would be as uncomfortable as possible. And Frey also ordered the police not to wear their uniforms if they were going to the rally off-duty. That's how blue Minneapolis is. They hate Trump. And yet, it's also the place where the police union, led by Lieutenant Bob Kroll, designed and sold T-shirts that said Cops for Trump, with a map of Minnesota covered with an American flag. And according to reports, these T-shirts were flying off the shelves as fast as they were produced. Of course, it didn't take long for the left to come up with black t-shirts saying cops against Trump written on them, but they just seemed like sore losers. Lieutenant Kroll got to take the stage, and he had a lot to say, including this, quote, The mayor said the president wasn't welcome, but the Police Federation of Minneapolis begs to differ, unquote. He spoke about how the president's support of police departments across the country has helped to even the playing field that took a beating during the Obama years. He said, quote, the Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around. He decided to let cops do their job, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead of on us, unquote. The Minneapolis Police Union began selling the Cops for Trump shirts as a form of protest against a new Minneapolis policy that prevented city cops from wearing their uniforms at political events. Kroll said that the new policy was politically motivated. That seems fairly obvious, since it was declared the same day as the Keep America Great rally was announced. He wanted America to see a sea of red at the rally as cops and other people who supported the cops wore these t-shirts with enthusiasm and pride. He reminded the crowd that when President Barack Obama came to Minneapolis, police officers were allowed to stand behind him in uniform. Here's my point. This is why I use this rally as an example. We're talking about one of the bluest states in the country. And yet, it's a state where our president, 
who is supposedly roundly hated in this state and certainly is by the mayor and his crowd. In spite of that, Trump was able to draw a crowd of 40,000 people who wanted to come and hear him speak. 40,000 people, and there were 60,000 more who wanted to come, but there wasn't room. This is amazing, and this is not the first time, because the last time he was in Minnesota, he also drew a huge crowd, and he draws these huge crowds wherever he goes. And unlike the Democrat crowds who come to the rallies, these people are not bussed in, they're not paid to come. They come because they adore this man who is our president, and they really do want to see him and get caught up in the enthusiasm and the excitement that he brings to these rallies. That's the kind of poll that we should be paying attention to. That's a poll I can believe in when 100,000 people want to get into here, and it's not a one-off. It happens every time Trump has a rally. The person, I think, who draws the most crowds on um, the Democrat side is Elizabeth Warren. And I, I think she ha and maybe Bernie Sanders, but they have drawn no more than 10,000 people. And that's unusual. That's, that's an outstanding number for them. The president draws crowds of 20 and 30,000 people on a regular basis. And it's because people love him and they respect him and they appreciate what he's doing for this country. And these are people, I believe, who may not answer polls, or if they respond to them, they may not respond honestly. It's a possibility, and I think it's probably true. So we're going to have to wait. We will have plenty of polls between now and then, and maybe your phone will ring, and you'll get a poll, or more than one. I used to get them for the last election. I got calls almost every other day from pollsters who wanted to know what I thought about this candidate or that candidate, and did I know them, and did I recognize the name, and did I approve of them, and did I like one candidate more than another, and uh, did I think I was going to vote for him or her, and so forth. And that was the way these polls go. I'm not sure that I will answer polls this year. I don't know. That, and when I do answer them, by the way, I answer them honestly. So here's my point. The polls that the politicians pay so much attention to and the news media keep touting as absolute proof of which way a candidate is going in popular opinion, that these polls are worse than useless because they actually misinform the public. They are not accurate. They do not take the temperature of public opinion. I do believe that if the politicians and the media paid more attention to what is actually going on, that they might have a much better idea of how to run their campaigns or how to report on them. And in the meantime, I'll keep watching the president's Make America Great rallies and I'll enjoy every minute. So now we're coming up to the season of the primaries. The first of these is really not a primary at all. It's the Iowa caucus, and that will be on February 3rd. 
and it will be followed eight days later by the New Hampshire primary. These will be the first two contests in a very interesting primary season, and they will set the stage for the rest of the country. And this is where the candidates on the Democrat side, particularly, will be whittled down to one candidate. And that candidate will be on the debate stage with President Donald Trump. And that should be very interesting indeed. So stay tuned. We have 13 months of very interesting events. Now here's another story. It's not a nice one, really. Two fires swept through portions of California last week. The Sandalwood Fire and the Saddle Ridge Fire. Saddle Ridge Fire was the larger fire. As of Sunday night, the Saddle Ridge Fire had destroyed 25 homes and nearly 8,000 acres and was barely under control. The second fire called the Sandalwood Fire, was particularly egregious. It was unnecessary. It never had to happen. Because this wasn't the case of an accident. It wasn't a case of a careless match or, or an errant spark. It was the case of someone doing something egregious, being told not to do it, and doing it anyway. It was the driver of a burning garbage truck who started this fire. This truck was carrying trash that had caught fire inside the truck. Now in his infinite wisdom, the driver decided that the best move under these conditions was to dump his burning load at the side of the road. The only problem was that there were fire warnings out that had been out for a week because the brush was very dry, and as you know, brush fires, wildfires, are very common and very dangerous in California at this time of year. There is actually a video showing this truck with its burning trash inside just moments before he dumped his load. It was a disaster just waiting to happen, and a disaster it was. The area around the truck was just littered with dry leaves and brush and every kind of inflammable materials that you find in the forest in a drought. The people of California had been warned. I don't live in California. I don't live anywhere near California. And I heard the warnings. It was that serious. They were warned about the threat of fire in California that was at its highest level and the Santa Ana winds that blow hot and fast and help spread wildfires faster than anything were blowing. In addition, a man pulled up, saw what was going on and begged the driver not to dump his burning garbage. Begged him, warned him that he would start a fire. But the driver ignored the warnings dumped his burning trash by the side of the road and drove away. He ignited the blaze that destroyed 76 buildings, mainly homes in a mobile park. An 89-year-old woman died in the fire trying to escape. 
and two other people were unaccounted for. This is the kind of thing, this is the stupidity that makes me so angry that I don't know what to say or what to do to appease that anger. I don't know who this man was who started this fire, but there's some question as to whether he is criminally liable and when, whether he will be tried for murder. I think that in this case would be appropriate. And so we'll have to, you know, as with all these news stories that I bring to you, we'll have to wait and see what the outcome will be. But the fires in California are still burning, and we can expect to see more before the season is over and the rains come. We're going to take a short break now, but I will be back before you know it with a story about a small worm who might just be the answer to resolving the U.S.-China trade talks. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio. On our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Well, we're going to start off this third part of the program, like we have been doing recently, with a section called, You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up. Did you know that SpongeBob SquarePants is a white supremacist? Did you know that? There's a lady named Holly M. Barker who has written a piece called Unsettling SpongeBob and the legacies of violence on Bikini Bottom. Now, a lot of people everywhere are very well acquainted with SpongeBob SquarePants, his activities and his friends on Bikini Bottom. But who knew? He was a white supremacist and a racist. My gosh. He's a cartoon, for heaven's sake. What is wrong with people? In the abstract for Barker's writing, she writes, SpongeBob SquarePants and his friends 
play a role in normalizing the settler colonial takings of indigenous islands while erasing the ancestral Bikinian people from their non-fictional homeland. She says that SpongeBob has colonized Bikini Bottom and 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 she says that the cartoon is whitewashing the violent American military activities against natives of Pacific Islands, specifically in the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands that was used by the U.S. military for its nuclear tests. The Bikini Atoll is still not habitable, and there are, according to this abstract, some conspiracy theorists who claim that the cast of SpongeBob SquarePants were mutated by the nuclear testing. Are you following? And then she says that an American character allowed to live there, SpongeBob shows that he is privileged by not caring about the detonation of nuclear bombs. Now, this is a children's show, and she says that it's full of gender bias as well because all the main characters on the show are male, except for Sandy Cheeks, who is a squirrel who lives underwater with the aid of a diving suit, and she, of course, is female. But this author says that she's just a token female in a cast of males. So if if your children or grandchildren want to watch SpongeBob SquarePants, just remember that there is a message in there that is counterculture, and you just can't make this stuff up. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the Democrat debates. Oh my gosh, it was a circus. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because it's just, honestly, I think it's mostly a waste of time. But I do really want to say a few things about it. Joe Biden, in his inimitable fashion, was the highlight of the evening. Here's what he said. He was discussing the economy and taxes, and he said, quote, why should someone who's clipping coupons in the stock market may, in fact, pay a lower tax rate than someone who, in fact, is, like I said, a school teacher and a fireman? It's ridiculous. Unquote. Well, what's ridiculous is that that was a totally incomprehensible sentence. What in the world was he trying to say? And then Biden had to defend his son's business practices overseas. He denied any wrongdoing. Although we've all seen the video where he actually bragged about having used a government loan guarantee to Ukraine as leverage for protecting his son and getting another man fired in the process. Now that's just patently illegal. But the interesting thing is that his son made a, a statement this past week saying that he didn't do anything wrong, but he regrets doing it and he won't do it again. Elizabeth Warren was basically attacked by everyone, probably because she is the leading candidate. But she refused to say whether she will raise taxes on the middle class. And she maintained during this debate 
that she wants to lower costs for everybody except the wealthy and the large corporations. You know, I don't know what she considers to be wealthy, but she's a millionaire. So how does she separate herself out from the others in that category? Bernie Sanders said he wants to lower costs, but his plan would also raise taxes. Now, both Warren and Sanders have been promoting a Medicare for All program. Klobuchar said that Warren's plan was a pipe dream because she didn't answer any questions about tax increases. Oh, yes, Pete Buttigieg. He criticized Elizabeth Warren for taking away Americans' choice with her plan of Medicare for All. If it's Medicare for All, Americans do not have a choice of what health care plan they can have. Now, Bernie Sanders had a different message. He promised to provide jobs for every single American, ending unemployment in the United States. And that was his jobs guarantee. He was asked a question. You say your federal jobs guarantee is part of the answer to the threat of automation, that tens of millions of Americans could end up losing their jobs. Are you promising that you will have a job for every single one of those Americans? And he said, damn right we will. He didn't say how, though. <laughs> but he did say this. He said that, that He said that his plan to combat climate change would require 20 million new jobs. And then he reeled off a list, a long list, of all kinds of jobs in all different industries. He also wants to nationalize energy production and reduce carbon emissions, of course. And then he said, we'll guarantee five years of a worker's current salary, housing assistance, job training, health care, pension support, and priority job placement for any displaced worker, as well as early retirement support for those who, who choose it or can no longer work, unquote. You know, he doesn't say how he's going to pay for all this. None of them do. And at the end of the day, that's my problem with all of this. Tom Steyer was up on the stage for the first time, and he said that America has to work with our frenemies in order to combat climate change. Well, I'll tell you something. If it weren't so serious, this would be really funny. It would be funny because these guys are a joke. They have these elaborate programs that they're promoting, but they don't say how they're going to pay for it. And the truth is they're impractical and they're impossible. And anybody who really wants to vote for any of these characters is going to deserve whatever he gets if they win. Let's get on to some real stories. You know, one of the big stories this week, and we haven't talked about yet, but we shall right now. President Trump has announced that the United States and China have agreed in principle on a host of issues that will be included in the first phase of our trade deal. He said that they had agreed in principle on many of the issues that will lead to the formalization of a signed agreement. And that was a big deal. Looming large in these talks was the sale of American agricultural products to China, which had been interrupted badly by the trade war that we were in the middle of because of the tariffs. Now, one of the really big issues in these discussions has been 
The agricultural products that the United States farmers send overseas to China. The president made very clear that agriculture was central to the discussion. Products like soy and corn, in particular soy. China is the largest purchaser of soy in the world. In the, pa in the past year, it purchased 60% of America's soy product. And that's a really important part of this trade deal, and it's an important part of the first phase of this trade deal. In fact, all the issues relating to agriculture were covered in this first phase. And that's a good thing, particularly for our farmers. Over the years, America has sold anywhere from five to $18 billion worth of farm product to China. The New Deal, according to the President and the Vice Premier of China, who was at the meeting, this deal will encompass $50 billion worth of agricultural product that the United States will sell and the China is committed to buy from us. Now that's enormous, from $18 billion to $50 billion. In a gesture of goodwill, the United States suspended a tariff increase of 5%. It was supposed to go this month from 25% to 30% on at least $250 billion in Chinese goods. Those tariffs were supposed to take effect this week. So that is one incentive for the Chinese. And that will be a good deal all around. It will help China and it will help American farmers in the Midwest who had a very rough year during these negotiations and it looked like the president would not be successful in closing the deal. Are we nearing an agreement with China in our trade talks? What is the possibility that we will actually achieve a real agreement and sign a deal? Well, a little worm told me that it's pretty good. And there's a good story here. You may ask, and it would be reasonable, why would the Chinese suddenly, in the face of all the difficulties we have been having with these talks, why is it that China is suddenly so agreeable? And the president says we've gotten almost everything we've wanted in these talks, so why is China so agreeable? Well, China is facing economic problems that they haven't been talking about. It has nothing to do with loans or intellectual property or even tariffs. These problems that we're not talking about are likely to make all the difference in how fast the United States and China can come to an agreement. And it's because of that that I think that this deal will go through within the next few weeks. Enter the Fall Army Worm which has made its way through southern China, devouring everything in sight. This little worm has a voracious appetite. And since it arrived in China last year, it has been found in 18 provinces throughout southern China. The fall army worm is one of the world's most invasive species, and it is threatening the world's food supply in Africa, Asia, and South America. 
So far, the fall armyworm cannot be eradicated, and it is costly and difficult to keep in check. There is no antidote. It does not have natural predators, and so far, even insecticides that have been used don't kill the larvae, just the moths. Nothing has worked so far. This little worm was originally a native of Central and South America, but it has now spread around the world and caused massive devastation to the crops in Central and Western Africa. It was first detected there in early 2016 and has now traveled to India and China. This little guy in moth form can and does fly 60 miles a night. That's when it travels at night. So it spreads rapidly, leaving its eggs wherever it goes. The eggs hatch and the larvae eat voraciously and they have destroyed the crops wherever they go. The agricultural industry has been working overtime to try to find a way to eradicate this pest. But so far, they've been unsuccessful. As I said before, the fall armyworm can't be eradicated, not yet anyway, and it is costly and difficult just to keep it in check. Just this past summer, 95 million acres across 18 provinces in China were seriously impacted by this little worm. Crops including corn, sugarcane, sorghum, and ginger were all ravaged. The moth lays approximately 150 to 200 eggs at a time, and it can produce several generations in a single season. It can lay up to 1,000 eggs in its lifetime, one moth. So if a solution is not found, and soon, this little worm is likely to lead to an overwhelming destructive force to the world's agriculture. Now, while the threat in China is over for this year because winter is coming, the danger is far from over. Because whatever methods have been used to control the worm, the eggs are not affected. So they will overwinter in the soil and hatch in the spring to start another plague all over again. The plague of the fall armyworm came this year right on the heels of a severe drought. So this one-two punch has created a massive food shortage in China that will impact the Chinese population throughout the winter. So why am I telling you all this? Well, with the massive damage to China's 2019 crops, the country is facing a famine unlike any it has seen in recent years. So its need for agricultural crops, including soy and corn, is significant and urgent. And it looks like China has little choice but to sign a deal in order to keep the Chinese people from starving this winter. The new purchase order will require a huge jump in production on the part of American farmers. When President Trump joked about how this huge new order would make it necessary for farmers to buy more land, maybe it wasn't a joke. Maybe they will have to buy more land. A lot more land. China's need to sign a deal with the U.S. for agricultural products is urgent. And that is why I believe that this deal will be signed within the next few weeks. 
Of course, nothing in life is for sure and certain, but we can hope. But the benefits of this deal for both countries will be enough of a driving force to see this deal concluded soon. Who would have thought that a little worm could have such an impact on the two greatest economies in the world? Amazing. Well, we have run out of time on another show. I always enjoy spending this hour with you every week, and I hope you will join me again next week. The news never stops coming, and the world never stops changing, and it never gets less interesting. Every day is something new. You've been listening to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. <laughs>